Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing our summer speech intelligibility series for teaching new speech sounds to toddlers and helping them become more intelligible. Now, if you're a parent and intelligible is a new word for you, it's really just how understandable a child is when he's trying to talk to you. And this is super important for us to kind of review these strategies as therapists because if you have worked with a different population, if you are not normally working with itty bitty clients or our youngest little friends, you may be doing some things that are developmentally inappropriate. And when we do that kind of thing, we're ineffective and we actually drive children away from us. And sometimes we even halt their progress because we as professionals or as parents knowingly or most of the time unknowingly are using techniques that were designed for older children. So today we are going to talk about how to cue new speech sounds in toddlers so that they can become easier to understand when they are trying to communicate with us. Now, as I said before, this is show number 376, and so this is actually the fourth part in this series for speech intelligibility for toddlers. And this, if you want to get the written information uh, from the show, you can get this in my therapy manual called Functional Phonology, a language-based approach for treating speech intelligibility problems in very young children. So you can get that at my website, teachmetotalk.com, and the link is right there below if you are watching on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, um, just go to my website, teachmetotalk.com. All right, so we are going to be starting here and let me review just a little bit of background information too if you are new to this series or new to my podcast and i've already mentioned that i work with toddlers or the youngest of our little clients and let's just say that adult-like speech is certainly not our goal here we do not expect children who are one and two or even three to sound like miniature adults there are sounds that are appropriate or that we feel like most toddlers or we know from research that most toddlers have mastered and then there are later developing consonant sounds that children probably won't be able to say when they're in this youngest uh, developmental age range so i want to be sure to get that out of the way too because if you've suddenly found my podcast on youtube and this is the first time that you've uh, read or listened to any of my material i want you to know that all little kids can be difficult to understand all children when they're learning how to speak go through their own series of their original pronunciations or mispronunciations and that's completely typical even children who've not had language delays can be difficult to understand sometimes kids who are light talkers and children who have had other developmental challenges certainly will experience some delays as they learn to uh, use new speech sounds and we refer to that as articulation skills uh, with in the field of speech language pathology or getting all the right sounds in the right places meaning that if a word is supposed to start with a b the child says a b sound in that spot so that's what we're going to be talking about today and this information may be as i say in my therapy manual in functional phonology this may be the most instructive section of this entire series for parents because as a parent 
you probably have never thought about how would I teach my child, my two-year-old, to say this sound. And as a therapist, you certainly, again, learn these techniques, and that this is kind of the bread and butter of our field. But we do have to be really careful to tweak this for toddlers and certainly, especially for toddlers who have been late talkers as well because they're sort of predisposed to having these kinds of issues anyway because there have been delays in how they acquire uh, their communication skills. So it's a really, really, really important uh, piece of information for us to have in our skill set, not only as therapists, but certainly if you're the parent of a late talker, I hope that you will uh, benefit from this information as well. All right, so let's get started here. So how exactly do we go about changing how a young child produces a speech sound? And let me just say, again, this is incredibly difficult for children who are not doing it on their own because as toddlers, their comprehension or ability to understand what we are asking them to do is certainly more limited than an older preschool child or a child who's school age or certainly than an adult. So just by nature, uh, just, just because of where they are developmentally, this is going to be extremely difficult for them to accomplish just because of their maturity level. And that sometimes frustrates us as adults. So we need to think about these things and what we can do to make that incredibly difficult process for toddlers easier. So here's what we do in order to change how a child produces a sound. We have to help him or her hear see and feel the difference in what we are asking them to change about how they produce a particular sound. Now, speech language pathologists call that cueing. And as a therapist, you've, you are certainly familiar with that term. And we think about three different kinds of cues that we use, actually all professionals in all fields, whether you are a physical therapist and you were looking at how a child or even an adult, an older person, changes how they use their body, we can help them do this in three different ways. Verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues. And again, I use the, the regular everyday terms before, so how a child hears it, so the verbal cue, how a child sees it, so the visual cue, so how is that sound made, and then a tactile cue, feeling it, feeling in his own little body or on your body how he would produce that sound. So as a therapist, you are already very familiar with these terms and with these examples that we're going to be talking about today, but our job as therapist isn't just to get a child to produce that sound correctly during a therapy session. It's to teach parents how to be able to carry that over at home because as I say on nearly every podcast I do and every course I teach, what good is it if a kid can do it with you as a therapist but he can't generalize that sound or carry that over when he's talking uh, with his family at home or with his little friends at school or wherever he might be. So it's super, super important that we teach parents how to use these kinds of cues and that's what the whole premise of my practice is about. And my whole website at teachmetotalk.com, when we founded that in 2008, it was not only to increase the clinical skills of therapists who work with this really unique population, but also parents. How can we teach parents how to help their own children? Okay, so let's start, too, with that parents already cue their children all day long, but they probably don't think about it as cueing. They might think about it as correcting or guiding or 
instinctively, parents just do these kinds of things uh, just in their everyday lives. And again, we do this no matter what field we're in or what, um, what, what avenue we're taking with a child or whatever we're working on with a child. These are things that adults do to teach children. Um, again, we're talking about speech sounds today, but it could, uh, these kinds of cues are applicable across all uh, aspects of child development. So 10 years ago, when I uh, videoed my therapy series or my DVD, Teach Me, Listen and Obey 1 and 2, I started really thinking about how can I best teach parents to cue children. And so in those months leading up to getting that DVD ready, I started really thinking about verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues. And parents, again, these are new terms for parents. And so I came up with what I think is the very best tagline <laughs> that I have ever coined in my entire career. And it's tell him, show him, help him. And again, tell him are the verbal cues, show him are visual cues, and help him mean those tactile cues. And this is a super, super easy way to teach parents to cue children for any kind of new skill that they're teaching. But today we're going to be thinking about that in terms of speech sounds or articulation and speech intelligibility. So tell him those verbal cues. This is how we, how we teach a new speech sound. We're going to model or say the sound that the child should imitate. And again, verbal cues are important because they help a child hear that difference in what a word or a sound should sound like. Now, there are several kinds of verbal cues that therapists use, and each of them is a really, really effective way, but each of them has a really specific purpose with a toddler. And we, we alternate these kinds of cues based on a toddler's response and based on a toddler's particular learning style. And yes, if you're a parent, if you're thinking, my child's only two, he doesn't have a learning style. Yes, he does. <laughs> and even you, as a parent, have a learning style. And if you are watching this on YouTube, you are probably a visual learner. You like to see this information. You've sought out videos so you can watch someone. You can see... Uh, how you're learning to do whatever you want to learn. And again, this could be, this carries across everything like we've already talked about. You might go on YouTube to uh, learn how to make a new recipe. You might go on YouTube to learn how to change a tire. You might go on YouTube to learn how to solve any other kind of little problem that you're having at home, some kind of home repair. So you are probably a visual learner if that's how you seek out information. If you are listening to this podcast and you haven't made the switch yet from listening to the podcast to watching it on YouTube, and if you've been a long-time podcast listener, you're probably a verbal learner. Or it could just be that your your environmental uh, requirements right now, it's, it's easier for you to listen to the podcast. But lots of us are auditory learners, and we depend on those verbal cues. We want to hear how to do it. We want someone to tell us about it. And as speech-language pathologists, we are very verbal. I mean, that's why we probably picked this career in the first place, right? So we have these learning styles. Tactile learners are kids who have to do something to really learn it. And actually all toddlers probably learn best this way, but they have to feel it. And these are the kids who you can't just tell them something and you can't just show them something. You have to physically help them learn how to do it. And so think about that 
with the temperament or the personality or just the, the uniqueness of the child that you're working with, what does he or she really, really respond best to? Is it when I tell her? Is it when I show her? Is it when I help her? And think about that as we are talking about these cues too. And you can go ahead and tailor the interventions that you were using or really guide them directly to a young child's learning style, even, even when they're very, very, very young. So let's talk about verbal cues first. And remember, that's how a, a child hears the correct um, model of the word or the sound that you were trying to get him to produce. And verbal cues really are the easiest because they are most like natural conversation. So when we're talking with someone and we are talking with a child who's mispronounced a word, we naturally should go to that verbal cue first. And I think lots of times as therapists, we get so distracted when we hear a young child produce a sound incorrectly. Let's say that he's trying to say cookie and he says, uh-ee. And so we naturally start with our speech therapy <laughs> strategies with, look at me, look at me. Oh, you say it. Let me touch your throat. That's a throaty sound. And we kind of go overboard a little bit when our first line of defense or our first strategy that we put in place should actually be the most natural or what a parent would do. And so we need to talk to parents about this too because sometimes they have their child, they've, they've done such a good job of getting their children in therapy and they're so proud of themselves, but common sense kind of goes away and they start with what they think is the most technical, most hands-on, most, uh, they, they, they think it's just the, the, the most special specialized strategy they could use and they forget that we should be actually using the least amount of cueing first and so that's where a verbal cue would come come in mind and so let's go back to the example i started with cookie and so a child says e for that we should just say oh you want a cookie you want that cookie and that's just a verbal sound and we've punched that pharyngeal consonant a little bit so that he can hear that hopefully but that's what I mean by verbal cue it's just saying or modeling the sound that we want the child to produce correctly and again this is the very first kind of cue and it's the best kind of cue even as a therapist before we try anything else and many times we don't start at this level but this is exactly where we should start especially with toddlers because Sometimes, again, we're going overboard and we actually do something to undermine a child's correct production of that sound because we do things like, um, let's, we, we try to isolate this error sound that they've made instead of leaving it in the entire word. And so let's use a word like go. Let's say that a child um, has said, let's say he says dough for go. So he substitutes a D for a G sound. And so you're trying to get him to say go. And so you might start with, you said that word the wrong way. You said dough and you should be saying go. Listen, listen, go, 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 go. So what's happened right there when you've cued a child that way? And again, this is something that all of us do. Even as a therapist, you might've done that before. So what's happened? you've actually modeled an incorrect production of that, how, that's, how that sound should sound to a child in a word. So when you were doing your whole go, 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 you really probably should have been modeling go, 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 because go, you've actually paired that uh, that other vowel sound 
with the G. And so now the child is really, uh, especially children whose speech sound systems aren't emerging as uh, they're the same as their little typically developing peers. And I've heard parents cue a child this way, and then the parent, the child actually starts saying guh for that word instead of go. But now he's mispronouncing the vowel because that's how you've modeled it. And so when I gave that example, no, go, 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 you actually gave three incorrect models of that word and just one correct one. And if you did the whole talking about, we don't say dough, dough is wrong. You don't hear mommy say dough when I'm trying to get you to say go. You've done the same thing. You said his incorrect production three times versus the one correct model. So the very best thing, the very first thing that we should do when we're cueing speech sounds with toddlers is just model the correct production first. And again, you don't even necessarily have to take that sound out of the word yet. Try it at that whole word level first. Now, so that that's one way to think about verbal cues. Another thing that we wanna do is think another kind of verbal cue can actually be giving specific instructions or specific directives for how we produce a sound. So back to our example with go, we could say something like, oh, you have to say that at the back of your mouth. And like I said, the, the throaty sound is what lots of speech language pathologists, you know, we give little names to consonant sounds to help children know where they produce the sound in their mouth and provide that just that additional level of instruction there. And so that's another kind of verbal cue when we're giving more descriptive explanations for how a child produces a word. And again, this may be more related to a pattern. The example I give in my book, Functional Phonology, is even saying something like if a child says yo for yogurt, we might say, oh, listen, that word has two parts, yogurt, yogurt, listen, and we're probably even clapping there, you know, yogurt, yogurt, and so that's a verbal cue when we, when we have a child, when we're providing that additional information about how a child should be producing that sound. Now, lots of therapists take that beyond saying that's a verbal cue. They actually call that a semantic cue, meaning that you're giving more words, you're giving more vocabulary there so that a child can figure out what he's doing uh, to correct that. But that's just another kind of verbal cue. And again, I've already mentioned uh, the cue that speech pathologists use a lot, and it's a semantic cue, is giving each sound that a child is mispronouncing a name so that he can associate that name with how he should produce the sound. So like a P or a P is called a popper sound uh, by lots of therapists because that tells a child you've got to pop your lips when you say that. And I love that the, the P, the popper sound, you know, there are actually two productions of that uh, sound in that word. And so it's a great way to help a child develop that internal representation of how he's supposed to change that sound. And we'll talk a little bit later in the show about the particular names that you could call a sound. And this will be helpful to you if you are a speech language pathologist and you're switching populations. Say you've worked with adults or, or older school age children and you're coming back to work in early intervention or pediatrics. And if you're a parent, you've never heard this before. <laughs> so you want to get some new information and some new guidelines about what you could call some sounds. But those are some, those, those are the kinds of verbal cues that we use. Anything, 
any information, anything that we say to a child where he can hear how to produce the sound correctly or hear additional information about how to change how he produces the sound. So that was the first kind of cue. The next kind of, and again, really important for auditory learners. So really important for kids who have to hear something and they, they're good listeners for the most part at this age. They like it when you tell them how to do something. They might be a kid who says, huh, huh, huh. Sometimes that doesn't mean that he's actually likes auditory information or learning that way. A lot of times it means that he has difficulty processing verbal information, but you can still, again, start to identify some learning strengths and weaknesses, even with how you think about these cues and how you're thinking about how a child responds to these cues. So that was verbal cueing. The next kind of cue is a visual cue. And remember, we're using our tagline, tell him, which was the verbal cue, and now we're up to show him so tell him show him help him show him are these visual cues and this just means that you are going to give him some kind of some model that he can look at so that he can see how to produce this sound so for the most part this just means that you are pointing and directing his attention to you and because we're talking about articulation you're really directing his attention here to your mouth and these again these kinds of cues help the child really internalize oh that's how you say it because I can see that there I can see what you're asking me to do so it's just an additional level of information or a different way to present this information about how to uh, change how he produces the sound now the very best way to provide visual cues for a toddler is with proximity so what do I mean by proximity? I mean your location. It is extremely difficult when a super busy child is running, running, running around the room. So if they were here, you know, they're all over the back here on the table. They're trying to sit in my lap. They're trying to get up here and get the camera. Those kinds of kids are not watching you. So if you're sitting there saying, you said book, or you said uh for book, and I need you to say book, look at my mouth book and they are just totally busy because they're across the room or doing something else that's your that that's a big clue <laughs> a cue to you that you've got to do something different about that by getting them to look at you so when I'm doing therapy with uh, itty bitty little friends I try very hard to stay in close proximity to them and so that means if they're running around the room I've got to get their little bodies regulated so they stop running <laughs> so that they can pay attention to my mouth and lots of times we can do this too children aren't always busy and they're not you know we and we can help them regulate their little bodies and get them calm and focused so that they're right in front of us but I do everything I can when I'm working on articulation with a child to to get us fixed in the position that they can watch me without lots of effort on my part so we don't really do this by belting a toddler into a high chair and that's a natural inclination of of parents and some therapists with well if he's too busy and he's up and running around and he can't listen to me or won't listen to me and I need him to see she's that lady on this YouTube said that I need to have him see my face so I'm just gonna belt him in where he can't move around as much that backfires on you so many times because then a child all they want to do is get out and they're fighting and they're doing everything they can to escape and avoid and so you're just really better off to figure out a way to get them to naturally want to sit and and do 
and what you want them to do. So that's participating in an activity that they already like and the proximity piece is putting yourself within their line of vision. And so this always means as an adult that we, we're not gonna be able to stand. We've gotta get eye to eye and face to face with children. And so I like to put children on a couch or a chair or even sitting on a low table and I'm on the floor because then I'm, I'm lower than them, which means that my body, which is bigger, is gonna be at that eye to eye and face to face level. So super important way to think about that. Sometimes kids like to sit in small chairs at a little table and you know, lots of our therapy rooms, if we are in clinics or in school settings are designed that way. Even in a school classroom or a preschool classroom, you'll find that. But at home, you may have to work a little harder to make that proximity piece or that visual piece work. And again, getting yourself within their line of vision is just a super, super first step in providing a visual cue there. Now, let me say that lots of speech pathologists like mirrors. And that's so that a child can watch his own production of that sound. And so ideally, he's getting his feedback about himself. So ideally, you were saying, oh, let's say that you're working on an M sound, an M sound, and so you and he's not anywhere near. He might be doing an N or something, some other, some other sound, and you want him to correct it and get that M. So you're saying something like, put your lips together, mmm, look at me, look at me, mmm, my lips are together, and you think that giving him a mirror will help him see that. And for some children, it will. And my experience has been mirrors work much better with older children, children who are in that preschool age range or even a school age child, or certainly as an adult. That's a fantastic uh, way to provide visual cues. But my experience with you know 25 years of doing this job and working with young children has been that the mirror is so distracting developmentally and they want to just do anything but uh, produce the sound and watch what you're trying to get them to do. Now they may again look at themselves but then that quickly devolves into them doing their own thing with the mirror and then you're totally left out of it and then you have to fight that attention piece with they're totally distracted. So figure out what works. If a mirror is more trouble than it's worth to provide a visual cue, don't do it. And if you were just fighting the child saying, you know, quit sticking out your tongue right now or quit licking the mirror or we're not really doing that, then the strategy that you're using is wrong or off or just does not work at that time for that particular child. Now it may work for another child who has a different learning style, who's a little more mature, who can listen to those kinds of directions and still uh, will we'll change his sound and will use the use it like you're intending. But if again, any any time we're using a tool that doesn't work, if if it's if if you're spending more time on trying to manipulate the strategy or the tool to get the strategy that you're trying to use or get to your goal, just forget it. Move on to something else. And, and for toddlers with me, it's them looking at my face rather than looking at themselves in a mirror. All right, so those were visual cues. That was showing a toddler how to produce the sound. The next kind of cue that we use with a child is a tactile cue. And remember, this was the help them piece. So helping means that we provide physical assistance to help the child 
produce the sound. And so this might mean that you're touching the child's mouth to shape the word. Uh, and the, remember here, it's that we are helping the child feel that difference between how he's producing the sound in the word and then how he should be producing the sound in the word. Now there are really formal and informal ways to provide touch cues. Because I'm working with uh, children in that toddler and early preschool age range, I default to the informal methods first because again they're more natural and they're more like they're more they're easier for parents to use and again as an early interventionist your focus should always be on not what's really happening in the session when the child is with you and, and certainly we can do that to facilitate these earliest speech sounds productions that are uh, correct or more accurate but if a parent can't carry over those same methods it's almost a waste of time to even do it that way in therapy unless you're always thinking I'm going to get this sound and then I'm going to teach a parent how to do it this way so if it's too hard for a parent to do I'm just not even sure I want to waste my own time doing that with therapy. Even though our services are super specialized and super technical, we're always trying to think about down the road. What, what happens when I'm not here? What happens when this child leaves me? Is this realistic for a parent to be able to carry over? So that's why I use a lot of informal touch cues that make sense to parents too. And so touch cues can be super successful for many toddlers who are by nature more compliant, who are pleasers, who want to do, they're cooperative uh, with normal reactions to touch. But for some of our little friends, especially children who have lots of developmental uh, red flags, who maybe, you know, again, are late talkers, maybe they've been later walkers, maybe there's some eating, uh, feeding issues that parents have identified too. For those, or, or maybe just their little regulatory systems are uh, to an extreme, meaning that they are in constant motion or that they are so resistant to any kind of incoming feedback from their body. Their clothes seem to feel itchy to them or somehow uncomfortable. So a lot of times they're, you know, our stripper <laughs> little friends, they don't like to wear clothes. They're really irritated if their sock is twisted a little bit. They notice these kinds of things about their bodies. They don't like tooth brushing. They fight their moms, just just fight their moms and dads when they try to brush their teeth. They don't like to get their hair washed. They don't like for their fingernails to be trimmed. And again, lots of those children also have the same kinds of problems with with eating and with feeding and so their diets are really really limited they may only eat two or three kinds of food they may reject new foods until they've seen them over and over again they may only eat soft foods and and really choke a lot on crunchy foods or the other way they may only like foods that are really really crunchy and foods they can really hear and feel in their mouths and so there's so many different kinds of arrangements or presentations that we can see with these kids but the bottom line is they have difficulty processing incoming information to their bodies and so that certainly will carry over with when you start to touch them you know let's say we're going back to that that cue that we were saying with an M sound with an mm. so you think well I'm just gonna reach up and close those little lips and 
boom, you've got a fight on your hand because they don't like that. They don't want you touching them in that way. They feel personally invaded. And, you know, I kind of think about that, too. You know, when a little friend reaches for my lips, now, again, I've done this job for so long that I don't naturally recoil when that happens, but it is a per an invasion of personal space. So you've got to, even for a two-year-old, even when his parents are all over him all day, changing his diaper, brushing his teeth, doing those kinds of daily care things, they still don't like for their bodies to be physically manipulated and I get that and so as a therapist we need to think about that too and so if, and, and you know that with if you're a parent you know oh my child's not gonna like that if I'm all, all trying to do something with his mouth so just use your own judgment with that and again don't fight the battle if you know that tactile cues are really gonna set a kid off don't do it figure out some other ways that you can help a child produce those sounds uh, more accurately without really making them too mad. Let me give you a couple of other things. So kids who resist tactile cues sometimes will accept them better when their little bodies are more regulated. So when they are really, really prepared. So let me give you some hints about this. And this is actually borrowing from the field of occupational therapy with helping children tolerate, again, different sensations in their bodies. So sensory processing, sensory regulation, you know, as a, as a speech language pathologist or an early, another kind of early intervention therapist, you're familiar with this. But remember that parents don't understand this terminology. So you're going to have to really explain to them how all of this works and the theory and again, not in all these academic terms, but just in everyday language. And you say something like, you know, your child is really resisting. You know, I've noticed that he does not like it when we're going to try to touch his little face. So we've got to do some other things to get his body ready for this so that he's able to tolerate these kinds of these kinds of tactile cues that you we want to use and as a therapist you should say and the reason that we're using these tactile cues is because you know we've tried to tell him we've tried to give him some verbal cues and you know we've tried to say hey get your lips together here get your lips together and we've tried to give him some visual cues we've said watch me mm, 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 and he still can't do it so my next little thing that I want to do is some tactile cues but he's not tolerating that. He's, he's not letting me do it. He gets so mad when I touch him. So here are some things that we can do to make that easier. And so we just know that when we know when we are trying to get one little part of the body able to accept touch, that we can't just start here. We've got to start with a child's whole body. So we talk to parents about that and we say, you know, we've got to get them really calm and really settled. And so we're gonna we're gonna start out here before we can do anything here. So those are the kinds of things that we would say to a parent. And so we might let a child run around a lot. We might do a lot of heavy work input, like jumping on a trampoline or jumping on a bed, and and getting them able, uh, getting their whole little bodies ready first. And OTs call that preparing a child's body. So um, you might do, and, and this is in my book, Functional Phonology, you might start with even a little song, like, um, it's to the tune of here we go around the mulberry bush so starting with a child's feet you know this is the way we squeeze your feet squeeze your feet squeeze your feet this is the way we squeeze your feet early in the morning and then you move up to his calves and you again you're preparing his whole little body you're going calves and his little thighs and you know you start with his arms we don't really do a lot of deep pressure to kids stomachs to their tummies or bellies because it makes them 
you know, have gas or sometimes urinate or <laughs> other unpleasant things. So we don't really want to do that. But, you know, moving up his little body with his hands and his arms and his shoulders, and then we work our way up to their mouths. So that's a good way to do it, too. And as a, as a speech pathologist, if you're uncomfortable with that, find yourself a buddy who's an OT who you can talk through through this whole process and really understand that theory so that you can not only do these kinds of strategies in a therapy session but introduce that to parents in a way that makes sense and again other things about normalizing a child's response to touch in and around his mouth other things that we can use here would be vibrating uh, toys so little teethers that vibrate and you can usually find those things uh, anywhere that you would find baby supplies that's that's you know a higher end you know not at the dollar tree or the dollar store but somewhere like walmart or target or kroger grocery store wherever you are look for those vibrating teethers because that can provide some additional input to little mouths or even a battery toothbrush if a kid will tolerate that that'll help normalize some sensation around a kid's mouth. Always remember too that you wanna to go with deep pressure, not lighter pressure. Light pressure to a child sometimes feels so ticklish and it makes them squirmish and just really, really uncomfortable. So deep pressure is always gonna be better and not so deep that they feel like you're hitting them in the mouth, <laughs> but deep enough for it to feel good. So think massage versus tickle when you're doing that kind of thing with, um, informal touch cues and let me offer an alternative to that as well so many times we think about what we can do to a child's mouth but i really like a child looking at my mouth and then feeling my mouth too so so many times a toddler's eyes follow her hands and so if you can get a child if you're trying to get them to focus on how you're producing a sound and again this this works even when we're talking about visual cues if you can't get them to really look at you just taking their hands and putting their little hands on your face will often just settle them right down and they are going to watch you and again you may have to get if that's brand new for a child if they don't regularly touch their parents faces that might be completely new and because as a therapist you're a new person they might have to you know do some other toddler exploration kinds of things before that's effective but especially with little friends that I've treated for a while when I really need them to pay attention to me and pay attention to how I'm producing a sound I often just grab their hands and put them right on my cheeks and that helps them just focus on my face and they can see my mouth and and that's where lots of kids I could I could really 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 get their attention and get them to start to want uh, to do that too all right so those were informal touch cues formal touch cues there's a whole entire therapy approach called prompt and that stands for prompts for restructuring oral muscular phonetic targets and it is a very hands-on approach with so much theory involved in this approach with how we facilitate movements of a child's mouth just by the way that we touch them and there are some ways that sometimes we think um, I'm going to touch a child this way and this is the sound I'll get and it's actually you're you're causing an opposite reaction to happen so you're not getting that you're trying to maybe get a child to widen his lips and he ends up puckering so again it's a very formal approach if I worked with children who were older and if I worked with children who were not as aversive to touch, you know, I see lots of kids who are on the spectrum and lots of our little friends with other sensory uh, processing and sensory regulation issues. And so I can't always 
use those kinds of cues and so I'm not prompt trained but if if you feel like as a therapist that would help your skill set and that would be something that you would need to do certainly pursue that a lot of times parents will read on the internet that I can't uh, they'll read on the internet that children with apraxia or dysarthria really really need prompt or again a formal system before they are going to make any progress with articulation and really that's I, I just have not found that to be true so I want to dispel that myth if you're a parent listening to that that's not to say that prompt isn't an, an a, a good therapy approach there's a lot of evidence for that but at the same time don't feel like it's the only game in town because it's not. You can often do it with lots of these informal things that we're talking about. All right, so we already talked about verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues. And here's the main thing that I want therapists to take away from this course or this show. Sequence your cues appropriately. And we I gave this example at the beginning, but I want to be sure that we are talking about it again because it's so, so important. You've got to really think about providing the least amount of cueing as possible so that the child successfully produces the word or sound but doesn't become overly dependent on those cues. So as a therapist or even as a parent when you're thinking about this and especially some things that I'm about to show you with some specific ways that we can get specific sounds, don't go straight there. You, you want to start with what we talked about before, the easiest level of cueing. So for a toddler who is producing a sound incorrectly, starting with that whole word verbal cue first is where we want to go with that because sometimes kids correct it at that point and then you don't waste lots of time <laughs> doing, you know, taking a sledgehammer to something when you could have just done it by pushing your, using your finger. Do you know what I mean by that? You don't always go for the biggest, most technical, heaviest tool in the bag when something easier might work. And again, you want a child communicating as independently and as effectively as possible, as quickly as possible. You don't want him to become like the only time I can ever get my lips together for an M is if my mom holds my lips together for an M. You know, you don't want to do that <laughs> forever, so don't make that mistake either. And so think about, um, think about that with using just the most natural cue that you can use in therapy. So again, that means modeling the entire word that you want a child to use. And you don't, do, you don't think about doing it a hundred times, which you do. I mean, we, say, we certainly will do that. But you certainly don't think about just doing it one time either and thinking, well, that didn't work. I like to use a three to five time guideline model when I'm teaching anything. So that might be if I'm teaching a sign, I'm modeling that sign three to five times. I'm asking for a child to produce a sound or a word or whatever we're working on three to five times before I try anything else. Because sometimes that, just that repetition or that me prompting that child three to five times, it's, it's, it's the just right place for that level of cueing. Now, again, Sometimes we misuse this, and so we'll cue a child 30, 40 times, and what happens then? Everybody's mad by that point. Everybody's frustrated by that point because you've gone way overboard with that, and then what's happened? You've driven the child away from you instead of keeping him with you. So I like to use that 
guideline that three to five times is what I'm going to do it and then if that still doesn't work I'm gonna move on to my next level of cueing so that might mean well let me just kind of walk through this and then we'll we'll get to what this looks like so that you or sounds like so that you can hear it now let me just say too the more severe a child's issues are the more likely it is that you will have to keep moving through that cueing continuum so you may start with that verbal cue with the whole word model and then you go to the specific sound and then with with just modeling the sound and then you're going to give a child more information about how to produce that sound remember we call those semantic cues so we were telling him exactly how to produce the sound so those were all our verbal cues then we move to our visual cues which is really showing him so pointing and directing a child's attention to your mouth or to her mouth uh, to get her to do that you may even use some other little hand cues so that you can uh, help a child produce that sound and then uh, you could use a mirror there, but remember we talked about that that may not always work for toddlers. And then it's that tactile cueing, so helping a child produce the sound so that he can feel it. So that's that physical manipulation. So I, I want to be sure to say with, with children who are more significantly affected, they probably will require you go to that tactile level so that they can accurately produce that sound in isolation or in a word. But again, you do not want that to, that does not need to be your first line of defense here. You've gotta help a child begin to intrinsically control that. So that means that he internally monitors how he's saying that. And let's, let me just remind you what I said at the beginning of the show. That requires a level of maturity and cognitive ability that many, many, many toddlers, especially those with other developmental delays, simply do not have yet. They're just, it's just not in their capacity yet to really hear that they are saying a t or a t sound and you want them to say a k or a k sound. I mean, they just developmentally are not there yet. And so that's why in these first shows in this series, we talked about how to determine if a child is developmentally ready for this kind of focused uh, articulation training. That was back in show 373. So go listen to that show and, and 374 actually, 373, 374. I wish I had this little list so I could refer to it right now, but go back and listen to, to this. Is this child ready for articulation therapy? And so if, if you are trying to implement some of these cues and it's not working for you, it's nearly, you can change how you do it. And certainly that's important. That's what this whole show is about. But lots of times it's just that the child isn't there yet developmentally. He's just not ready. And so keep that in mind as you are working through these kinds of cues is you're trying to do these kinds of uh, use these kinds of techniques with toddlers if you feel like we are getting nowhere here it could just be that that internal analysis is just beyond what a child can do and so we are trying again using science <laughs> with what we've learned about verbal cues visual cues and tactile cues so we're, tr we're getting them there and we're using the least amount of cueing to the most amount of cueing but it really does depend on how well a child is internalizing these things. How well is he learning? And so, so earlier in my career, I did try to kind of go for the most bang for my buck and to always look like the most technical, experienced, 
speech language pathologist I could be, which often meant that I tried to do all these tactile cues and do a lot of physical things with a child's mouth when that was inappropriate and they weren't ready for that. And so I wasted a lot of time and I don't want you to do that. I want you to really think about the all these factors that we've discussed. All right, so let's talk about one more time with verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues, how this would look. And if you have the book, Functional Phonology Already, that therapy manual, this is on page 67. <laughs> so if you decide, oh, I need more information about this, or you already had the book, look at this example because this is how using these kinds of cues looks or should look and sound in real life with a toddler. So the example that I've used in the book is the same one that I'm going to use here. Let's say that a child says ah for ball or ah for ball. And so what would you do first based on what kind of cue would you go for first? You're going to start with what? verbal cues. So the easiest kind of cue that you could do. And remember, what did we say? Did we say we're going to do a lot of telling a child how to produce a sound first? No. What do we do? We're just going to produce the word correctly. So he says, ah, for ball. And we say, oh, you want your ball. Tell me ball. Say ball. And you give that kind of instruction so that you are modeling what you want him to say. Thankfully, for many kids, that works. <laughs> they hear you say ball and put the b on there. Now, let's talk about ball, that final L. Lots of toddlers will not be able to do that yet. One, because they don't have final sounds yet. They're still omitting those, and that's okay. Lots of kids don't get, can't, don't put, use final consonants in sounds and in words until they are almost three. And so we're not going to worry. And L is a later developing consonant sound anyway. Many children don't master that until four, four and a half or even older. So we're not going to worry about the L there. We're just trying to get the first sound, the first B there, that bilabial B. And so, but again, our, our first line of our first line strategy here is going to be just saying the whole word. So he says, ah, for ball. And then you say, oh, you want ball. Tell me ball. Say ball. And then he, he just uses his vowel sound again. And then you still use that whole word repetition. You get right in his little face in and say, ball, ball, say ball. And again, you're modeling that for him correctly. And so those, and you might even say something like, listen, listen, ball and so you're right there so that he can hear that in initial B and let me just say at this point after I've modeled ball we're using that three to five time guideline probably a little longer since this is the first time that he's asked for this and the first time that I'm actually going to try to change how he says the sound at this point I still go ahead and give the child the ball anyway even if he hasn't produced the sound correctly because I want him to stay with me I want him to know that his efforts count he doesn't have to be perfect in order to get that ball and withholding you know you've got to be careful about it because it all you you can overdo it so if at this level with the child if you are holding out for that that B has got to be in place or he does not get that ball, he's not even going to want the ball <laughs> by the time you're finished with him. He is no longer going to care about the ball or you. He is going to reject all of that because you've taken him to a point where he's too frustrated to even hear you. So I really try to use that three to five time guideline and go ahead and give the child the ball anyway. 
And then as you play with it and as you let him have it, you get it back. If you're sharing the ball, if he drops the ball, if he throws the ball, beat him to it and go get the ball so that you can start over and have another opportunity to cue that sound correctly. So let's say you then you get the ball back and you're holding it. And so you've already given him all those verbal cues and now you give him another opportunity and, you, and he says, um, you know, all again for ball. And you might say, oh, and here you're going to bump it up from a verbal cue to a visual cue. And so, or, or you may even go back to that verbal cue and you may say, oh, listen, 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 ball. And so again, you're giving him the visual cue because you're pointing to your lips. You're directing his attention to you. You're giving him a little bit more information, even verbally. You might say something like, get your lips together. Look, look right here, ball, ball. And so you may even be combining those cues. And so this is how this is going to look in real life. We started out with that whole word model. Then we're going to take it back to pull that sound out where it's still a verbal cue. We're going to move to those visual cues where we're redirecting his attention at that point. And then, again, what do you do after just a few little exchanges there, that three to five time exchange? Give him the ball again. Let him have it so he can stay with you. You still may not have gotten the correct production with the verbal whole word cues and then with the cue of the sound in isolation and then with, you know, listen, put your lips together so that semantic verbal cue. And you still may not have gotten it with the visual cue. But he's still with you, and he still likes you, and <laughs> he still wants the ball. He's still interested in what you were using as your therapy material. So you give it back to him, and then you do the whole thing, let him play with it again, and then within a minute or so, you get the ball back so that you can start again, and you move all the way through this process. You may even, again, use some tactile cues where you're helping him get those little lips together. But you always remember that you want to go from the least amount of assistance to the most amount of assistance. And so you start with those verbal cues, move through that whole continuum, then move to the visual cues, and then the tactile cues. So I hope that makes sense to you. And if you need to see it written again, my book, Functional Phonology, you can get the written example. All right, so in this last few minutes of this course, I want to give you just some down and dirty tips if you're a parent for, for cueing, uh, especially the, the constant sounds that are appropriate for children to have mastered uh, through their third birthdays. So from the time that they are begin to talk at about 12 months through 36 months here. So the sounds, and let's talk, let's talk about these in groups of sounds because this is how speech language pathologists think about sounds. So we really have a couple of, or, or three big categories of sounds. So we have our bilabials. And again, bi meaning what? Two and labial meaning lip. So these are our bilabial sounds. And so these are P's, B's, and M's are how we think about this. And so, these sounds are usually mastered uh, in both positions, so at the beginning of words and the ends of words, and we're not thinking about those medial consonants yet. For lots of kids, that comes after three. And so all three of those sounds, P, B, and M, are typically mastered by 36 months at the beginning and ends of words, and actually by labials, those P's, B's, and M's come in in the initial positions in words much earlier. And, and so many uh, of our researchers tell us that those are actually the first sounds, first consonants sounds that children make. So the first kinds of sounds right there with their lips. And so 
that we remember before when I was saying that you can use the name of a sound to really give a child a description of how he produces the sound. And again, this is to help him internally monitor and develop how the sound should feel in his own little body. So we call, uh, uh, and, and these little names that I've adapted for these sounds, and again, you can get the list in functional phonology, but I've picked those up from everywhere. David Hammer is an apraxia expert who is fabulous that I learned a lot of the sounds, names that he calls sounds. Nancy Kaufman is another apraxia expert that I sort of have, have borrowed <laughs> these kinds of uh, cues from. But you call a P a popper sound, and then I call a B a big popper sound or a loud popper sound, and then an M is an mm, mm good sound or a humming sound. For some kids, the cue I've used is a mama sound. And so again, think about the name that you could call a sound to help a kid really, really uh, remember and have a direction for how he should produce that sound. And so what are some things that you can do if a child is not producing P's, B's, and M sounds, either in isolation or at the beginnings of words. You wanna call, the first thing you wanna do is just call attention to where in their mouth they would produce the sound. So for these bilabials, it's their lips. So you can do things like raspberries, like blowing raspberries, to get a lot of that good feedback there. And a Pamela Marshalla was a very well-respected speech-language pathologist who taught a, uh, just a whole kind of theory about with toddlers blowing raspberries really helps them learn place of articulation meaning is the sound made in the middle in the front of my mouth in the middle of my mouth or at the back of my mouth and she's uh, check out her book it's called becoming uh, verbal with uh childhood apraxia and that that whole kind of theory is just my number one go-to strategy for kids who aren't doing P's, B's, and M's. We want to get them more aware of their lips and that they can get them together and they can purposefully control that. And so raspberries are a great thing to do. You can also use some whistles or some horns to direct their attention to their lips or even some teething toys again to provide that feedback there. Um, I do other things easier than even that. I mean, those are real play-based things, but just things like smacking their lips. And uh, uh, my favorite thing, like I already said, is the mm-mm-mm good sound. So we may eat a lot of snacks in therapy so that we have an opportunity to practice mm-mm-mm good or or if they like pretend play and they already get it and that's fun for them lots of pretend feeding baby dolls and talking about the baby doll's lips and if i have a baby doll that has lips that are closed and then a doll who has a mouth that's open you know we talk about that so that they can see that and they can start to notice that and notice that on themselves if if they can use a mirror and i would talk to parents about talking about their mouth is open when they're looking in the mirror versus their mouth is closed and they can do that at other times like when they're taking a bath or or looking in the mirror in the car or maybe mom or dad has them up on the vanity in the bathroom just anything to get that awareness going humming is a good thing to do for kids who aren't getting bilabials so practicing getting their lips together and again that you know <laughs> whatever song you're singing if they like if they like itsy bitsy spider you might try to do that with a <laughs> and because kids already know that song and they like that song that's a good idea that you could do with that now our another lip sound here uh, that we don't always think about or didn't traditionally think about 
for uh, children would be a W sound or a slidey sound is what lots of speech pathologists call that because you do uh, move your mouth with a W there. And so if a kid can't get a W sound, what are some things that you could do? I talk about rounding your lips or making your hole is what I say because you're going from that initial position of an ooh there that's like a W and getting a kid like that. We talked about the horns and whistles, another good thing to make a child more aware of their mouths. Straw drinking is a good thing to get that lip rounding that a child needs for W. So lots of those kinds of things um, are can, again, make that production of that sound easier, just things that parents can carry over in everyday routines. So as a therapist, you need to be teaching parents these tricks. And again, if you don't know all of those things or you're, you're having trouble kind of jotting those things down right now, get the book because you've got some good list in there. And you've also got great initial words to practice with those sounds when a child gets those and they're already in facilitative context. And what does that mean? That means that it's we've already paired the consonant sound, the P, the B, the M, or the W with the vowel that's going to be easiest to correctly produce the consonant sound. So get your hands on the book so you can get that information. So that was our first set of sounds. The next sounds are alveolars. Now these are sounds that are made in the middle of the mouth. So T's, D's, or N's. And so these sounds are usually produced by children by 24 months and at the beginning and then beginning and uh, by final sounds again we talked about by 36 months and so t's d's and n's and so what do we call these so these kinds of sounds i call them our tapper sounds or our tippy sounds and that's because you make them by elevating the tip of your tongue so a, a t -t -t or a t -t -t. and again as a parent Try really hard not to get a prolonged vowel sound when you're modeling the consonant because like we talked about with the previous uh, back earlier in the show with the example of go, when we were saying guh, 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 really you don't want a kid to think that the uh sound is part of the G, the G that you're trying to get. So try to model it as cleanly as you can, but that is so hard. I mean, that's hard for me and I've been doing this for 25 years. So, um, just just think about that try your best with that so what are some things that you can do if a kid can't do a t a d or an n sound you're always going to want to get that tongue elevation i like to talk about feeling your bumps and so the if you're a parent the little ridges that are at the behind your front teeth so think about that and uh, lots of toddlers will like that and sometimes i can if they'll let me put my finger in their mouth and really rub right there and say you know get your tongue up there you know can you get my finger right there and so clicking his tongue is another good way to get that sound even when you're to just get a gross approximation of the sound meaning gross meaning not a fine not a close approximation but just an attempt so even something like you know you know, like pretending to eat, you know, and again, all these little tricks, you can use these in pretend play and, and try to elicit these sounds so that it's not so in your face therapy focused that a kid would want to do it. So any other thing that you can get to get that tongue elevation, if you see that a kid can't really elevate their tongues, licking a popsicle or any kind of, uh, again, where, where their tongues are up, where their tongues end up up <laughs> and then you talk about oh your tongue is up and you do start to as 
as best you can, tailor that to a toddler's comprehension level, his receptive language, so that you're saying your tongue is up, so that he starts to really, really, really realize that. So those are my best tricks for getting those alveolar sounds. The last class of sounds that are appropriate or developmentally appropriate for toddlers would be K's and G's. And typically developing toddlers master K's and G's by 36, to 32, uh, three, 36 months to three and a half. So what do you do? These, we call these, the names of these sounds are called throaty sounds. And so we didn't talk about the voice versus the unvoiced, but k and g, the K and the G are really the same sound, but with the K, your voice is off. It's an unvoiced sound. And with G, your voice is on, so it's voice. Same thing with T and D, really the same sound, made at the very same place in your mouth. But T is the unvoiced partner of D. Uh, and with P's and B's, same thing. P is unvoiced, B is voiced. Now, as a speech-language pathologist, I mean, again, this is what you cut your teeth on in undergrad. You learned all this. But parents don't know it. So you have to explain these kinds of things and use the same explanation that I just gave there. Parent, parents get that, and they then they start to understand it a little better. So what are some things that you can do if a kid can't get a K or a G sound? you, you got to get that tongue back. So... Uh, I've done lots of things with kids when we're both on the floor, you know, lying down, so their tongues naturally fall back in their mouth. So even just pretending to drink or gargle or gulp, or your, you know, that kind of sound. So get to that, uh, get get to that position and see if you can't get it a little better there. Um, straw drinking is really good to also facilitate a K or a G sound because. Of tongue weakness so if we can do anything to strengthen uh, that tongue while they're moving back and especially during retraction and I know I'm using a lot of technical terms that I try really hard to avoid but this is a course for speech pathologists but yet it's on YouTube and so I want parents to be able to understand this information too so I'm always trying to walk that fine line there stay on the fence between technical enough for a professional but easy enough that a parent isn't just so turned off like with I don't understand anything she's saying so um, again straw drinking can be great for some kids to really uh, prepare their little bodies to use those for pharyngeal <coughs> excuse me constant sounds there so those are some good tricks uh, for K and G years ago you know again I've been doing this for 25 years and I I would pretend all the time to shoot you know <coughs> with a little pretend gun. Now, that is no longer politically correct. But if you live in a place like I do, in central Kentucky, that is a perfectly fine kind of cue to use <laughs> to get a K or a G sound. But use your own discretion with that. Uh, but those those are the cues that most often work for those throaty sounds, Ks and Gs. And our last consonant sound that's developmentally appropriate is another throat sound, but it's an H. So the it's actually a glottal sound and made in the throat. Beginning H is usually produced by most kids by 24 months, and H does not occur in the final position in words. So your best strategy to get an H sound is to think about helping a child see his airstream. So what does that mean? He's, he wants, you want him to feel and see that air coming out of his mouth for The best way to do that is to get by a window or, again, a mirror, but a window's easier because they don't have that reflection to compete with, and let them just see that air, I can do it with my glasses, 
and then talk about oh look did you can you do that can you and I say can you make that cloudy cloudy may not be the best word there but that's the word that I've, I've used for it you know or I'll say let me see you blow and then you can see the uh, condensation there on the glass and you can help a child really learn that he's got to direct that airflow other things that you could do you could do some blowing things again not always as tight as cleanly like we've talked about the straw drinking to get tongue you know strengthening during tongue retraction there these aren't always tied to better speech production to produce better speech sounds we need to practice speech so as a parent don't always think they're as closely connected uh, but there is some correlation because if those little body parts aren't moving as, as we expect them to move we have to facilitate that correct movement as well um, panting for a dog <laughs> that's another great way to get an H another really really good uh, trick there or just <sighs> I call H my breathy sound or my windy sound and so helping a child see that and feel that are really great ways to get it and and let me say one more thing about these consonants with with cueing these developmental um, consonants these sounds that kids should the consonant sounds kids should master during that toddler period so that's why we're calling them developmentally appropriate consonants the reason that you want to do that is not so that they can produce the sound by itself or in isolation you've got to move that sound quickly to a word so even if you find some of these tips very very helpful sometimes you may still then a kid may be able to do a right here but still say i for high because he can't get the the h combined with that vowel there so don't spend so much time getting a sound in isolation unless you really really have to and, and, and as soon as you get it in isolation you know don't just beat it to death quickly move that sound into a word because your point isn't correct production of the sound in isolation your point really is intelligible speech so you've got to get that combined and again I've already told you I've got a cheat sheet for you in functional phonology so that you can get the list of words that make it easier for a child to produce the sound correctly so uh, get your hands on the book so you can make it easier for yourself all right so that's it for today i hope that you've learned some new strategies not only with tell him show him help them with your verbal visual and tactile cues but then some real specific tricks to facilitate those sounds that a child may not be able to produce on his or her own yet Thank you so much for joining me, and that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I hope you'll join me for the next podcast, uh, audio or video, from teachmetotalk.com.